Well, good morning. The Lord be with you. My name is Roger Skultz. If we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, I hope that there'll be opportunity after the service today. I'm one of the pastors here at Hyde Park, United Methodist, fairly new to Tampa, and loving being with you all. Last Sunday, as I was with you for the first time, I spoke about a beautiful greeting in Isizulu, Sawabona, which literally means, I see you. We talked about the things that get in the way of truly seeing others and even ourselves, but how God looks beyond the labels and self-limiting identities we embrace and sees us as we really are, beloved sons and daughters and cherished in his sight. We heard the good news that God speaks this liberating and life-giving word of Sawabona to each one of us. I must tell you, friends, that over this past week, I've been so grateful for the ways in which so many people have said Sawabona to me. The gift of a beautiful prayer shawl at our staff devotions on Tuesday an invitation to join a club run along Bayshore, even sitting in the dunk tank at the family fun night on Friday with a long line of kids desperate to dunk their new pastor. <laughs> Last week, I also mentioned some of the challenges for me in driving on the wrong side of the car on the wrong side of the road but somebody helpfully sent me this picture of how I could fix <laughs> at least part of that. So Glenn, I'd like to speak to you after the service about some modifications to the church vehicle, if that's okay. <laughs> Today, I'd like us to think about what it means to say Sawabona to God. So please join me for a prayer. And now, O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A little girl in kindergarten was drawing a picture. Her teacher asked her what she was doing. I'm drawing a picture of God, she replied. But nobody knows what God looks like, said the, said the teacher. With a great big smile, the little girl replied, well, they will in just a moment. <laughs> I love that story. It contains at least two truths. On the one hand, the teacher was right. Nobody knows what God looks like, not exactly. Even our most sophisticated theological ideas are utterly inadequate to describe the glory of God. We do well to remember that. That before the great mystery that is God, we are all a bit like kids in kindergarten. But on the other hand, the little girl was right too. There's a picture of God inside all of us that comes into focus for others through the things we do. That's quite a thought. 
and it raises some critically important questions. How do we see God? What picture of God has been formed within us? What kind of God are we revealing to the world as individuals and as a church through the things we do? In his book, The Source, James Michener paints pictures of life in the ancient Near East, long before even biblical times. In one scene, he describes a woman standing at the door of her house weeping as she watches her husband take their newborn baby to the local temple to offer him as a human sacrifice to the gods, as was the requirement of their religion. For nine months, she had known that this moment was coming and had tried to prepare herself, but nothing could prepare her for the sheer horror of that moment as she watched her husband taking their firstborn baby away to be slaughtered. In another scene, we see the same woman standing in the same place weeping once again. This time, it's because her husband has gone off to the local temple to have intercourse with the temple prostitutes there, for that too was a requirement of their religion. Heartbroken, she watches her husband go to be with another woman. As she does so, she raises a finger and points at him and speaks these words. If only he had a different God, he would be a different man. It's true. The God we serve shapes who we are, which is why the pictures of God within us are so critically important. Because if they are inherently false, then the more religious we become, the worse off we'll be. And all that we'll offer to the world is bad news. Unpicking such false ideas about God has been one of the great gifts of the Judeo-Christian tradition, especially the false idea of God as an angry, vengeful, bloodthirsty deity to be feared. Over and over and over again in the Bible, whenever there's an epiphany, the first words spoken by God or an angel or Jesus are the words, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus related to God in the intimate terms of Abba, Father. He showed us that the face of God is compassion and love. That God is not a terrorizing presence before whom we should cower in debilitating fear. Friendship with God is what we are all invited to experience and to enjoy. That's the good news at the very heart of the gospel. And yet, with that necessary corrective to the false idea that God is out to get you, I wonder whether the pendulum has swung to the opposite extreme. There's a chumminess 
that's crept into our spirituality, a chumminess with God, reducing God to a gray-bearded grandfather who makes no claims upon us, or perhaps a friendly acquaintance who comes along to our book club gatherings on a Sunday, not that we always notice her or ever expect her to actually say anything. Donald McCulloch writes, reverence and awe have often been replaced by a yawn of familiarity. The consuming fire has been domesticated into a candle flame, adding a bit of religious atmosphere perhaps, but no heat, no blinding light, no power for purification. Have we lost our sense of the holy. When we come to church, is it just another stop on our weekend social calendar? When we come to church, do we ever think that our lives as we know them may well be on the line? Do we come here expecting to encounter the living God, expecting to be struck by a sense of wonder and awe and amazement before the great mystery of holiness and to be forever changed as a result? Do we have any idea who or what it is that we invoke when we call on the name of the Lord? Annie Dillard puts it brilliantly. She writes, it's madness to wear ladies' straw hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. <laughs> Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Today's reading from Isaiah 6 is a vision of precisely that kind of encounter with God that draws Isaiah out to a place from which he can never return. It was for him a true Sauerborner moment. This morning, I'd ask you to notice just two things about it. Firstly, notice that Isaiah's vision of God starts in the temple, but it isn't confined there. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Isn't that a remarkable image? That the temple, and by that term we should understand not just a physical building, but the entire religious life and practice of Israel that it symbolized, that the temple was barely sufficient to hold the hem of the Lord's robe. The temple was like a page boy holding the train of the Lord's robe. That's how much bigger God is than our religious categories and constructions. As the seraphim flying around the throne of God put it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
What a challenge to all of us, especially we who find ourselves in church on a Sunday. It challenges us to rethink our expectations of the ways and times and places in which God might show God's self. Isaiah's vision reminds us that the holiness of God explodes every confining religious category that we might possibly imagine. God is not limited to move only in a particular time or place or preacher on a Sunday, or only through a particular style of worship or ministry or theological perspective or even faith confession. God is bigger than all of that, bigger than just one hour on a Sunday, bigger than the church, bigger than the Bible, bigger than Christianity itself. And while God certainly inhabits all of these things, God is never confined by them. Some years back, I had a Sauerborner moment that gave me a hint of what this can mean. I was walking along a deserted beach early one evening during a particularly dark season in my life. There were heavy clouds overhead. A strong wind was blowing and it was threatening to rain. The turbulent weather seemed to mirror my spirit because there were weighty matters on my heart and it felt as if God was very far away. As I walked, I found myself praying this prayer, God, give me a sign that you're there. As I prayed, I remembered the words of Jesus. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. And I knew that that's true. That God doesn't have to prove a thing. I also knew that the fierce beauty of the sea and the wind and storm clouds all around me was sign enough of God's presence and greatness and that for one of even a little faith, that should be enough. But still the words came, God, give me a sign that you're there. And then just like that, it happened. This massive lightning bolt came streaking down from the dark clouds over the sea as thick, jagged arteries of light lit up the blackened sky. It lasted for just a second or so, but in that brief moment, millions of kilowatts of pure power was discharged, and I gulped. I was standing on an exposed stretch of beach, all six foot four of me, pretty much a human lightning conductor. And that's not even mentioning my long nose. And while the lightning struck way over the sea, it felt like there was nothing between me and this naked expression of raw power. And I said, thank you, Lord, that'll do. And I quickly headed for cover. But as I reflected on what had happened, I realized that for me, this wasn't just a lightning bolt. It was a beautiful and dramatic reminder of the holiness of God 
and the power of heaven that continues to touch the earth in surprising and unpredictable ways. And the utter inadequacy of my theological ideas of how God should or shouldn't show God's self. It was for me a soul-borne moment in which my picture of God changed in a healthier way. So what about you? Have you drawn the limits of what God can or cannot do in your life? Have you got God all figured out? Has your faith become full of no surprises? If so, I want to say, friends, lovingly but clearly, your picture of God is way too small. But there's good news. The whole earth is full of his glory, which means that at any time, in any place, a Sauerborner moment can happen for you in which you can catch a fresh glimpse of the dazzling glory of the living God. Maybe that time and place is for you right here, right now. Maybe it's waiting for you outside or at home or school or work. I dare you to look, to look around with eyes wide open to amazement and just maybe you'll be able to say to God in a new way, I see you. The second thing I'd ask you to notice about Isaiah's vision is what happened to him as a consequence of this encounter with the holiness of God. Standing before the searing light and truth of God's presence, Isaiah's life is exposed. And so he cries out, woe is me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. In Isaiah's mind, in his religious understanding, he was finished. As a sinful man, he couldn't survive a face-to-face encounter with the holiness of God. It was game over. Any moment now, and he would be incinerated. Like those electric coils that zap bugs. Hmm? Do you, you have those things here? I know that mosquitoes are also God's creatures, but let's be honest, that's a great sound. (laughs) 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 That's what Isaiah thought was going to happen to him. But God is way bigger than that. And so God had a different idea. Yes, what follows is a burning coal, but it touches Isaiah's lips not to incinerate him, but to restore him, to purify him. And with that cauterizing coal, the words, see, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Friends, could it be that sometimes we make too big a deal of our sin? Don't get me wrong. 
I'm not for a moment suggesting that we take the devastating reality of sin lightly. God certainly doesn't. The cross is surely proof enough of that. But there does come a moment when we need to hear and trust the words that declare to us, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In other words, get over it. Let it go. God has far greater concerns than just dealing with your sin. As Isaiah discovered, for immediately after his encounter with the burning coal, he's, over, he's overhearing the burning questions of God's heart. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's a world full of need that weighs on the heart of this holy God. And God's aching question is, who will go? Who will be a part of what I'm doing to bring hope and healing to the world? Can we see God in that light? Can that become the picture of God within us that we bring into focus for others through the things we do? If so, it will surely be a Sauerbrunner moment of good news for us and for our world. Amen. Let's be quiet for just a moment. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yes, most holy gods, your glory is all around us. Open our eyes that we might see you afresh. Come and stir in our hearts by your spirits that we might encounter you in life-giving and life-changing ways. And may we bring into focus for others the God that you really are for the hope and healing of our world. Amen.